Hear the word of the Lord from John 7, 1 through 52. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly to him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is Moses, from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come in, of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, 
this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of the people wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Oh, it is good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And today marks the end of an era for us as a church. Uh, we have been worshiping Jesus together in this chapel for 11 and a half years. We started our church January 1st, 2012, and we had 63 total people in this building. Uh, last week, we had 450 souls between our four buildings on campus, and today marks our last Sunday in this building. I, got, I just want to take a moment and say, um, let me just do this. Uh, who, who has came to faith here in the past 12 years? Raise your hand. Okay. All right, hands down. Awesome. Who has gotten baptized in this building in the past 12 years? Okay. Who has gotten married here in the past 12, maybe not in this building, but in the past 12 years, right? Yes, yes. I know there's some, I, you got baptized in my bathtub, so I know that. We did that one in missional community, all right? Man, I have seen God do so much in the lives of people in the past 12 years. It just absolutely blows me away. People come into faith, people growing in their faith, people getting married, people getting baptized, people having children. How many have had children since we've been in this building? How many children, this is all you've ever known is this building right here, right? My kids are like, they're like, they're, they don't really know how to feel about the new building. They're like, but this is our building. I'm like, no, no, this was our building. Now that is our building over there. God has done so much. He's been so faithful to us over the past 12 years. And this really does uh, mark an end of an era. Today, this, is, this building will kind of, and this campus, let's say that, this campus will always be an Ebenezer for me. And in the Old Testament, a thousand years before Jesus was born, the prophet Samuel, he took a stone and he set it up and he called its name Ebenezer. And Ebenezer literally meant a stone of help or the Lord has helped us. So I want you to remember that the Lord has helped us. So I'm gonna put this stone up here, like a little, think of a little Mr. Potato Head, right? Put this little stone up here. And this is a reminder that God has helped us. And now why did they need that? Because today brings its own problems. Tomorrow brings its own problems, its own difficulties. And it's important to have a stone of remembrance, a stone that helps us remember that God has helped us, right? God helped us through a pandemic here, right? This campus, we were one of the only churches that could meet because we had a, we had a giant tent set up out there and we met for like eight months through the heat of summer and the last Sunday when all the guitar strings were breaking because it was 32 degrees. 
And it was raining, and there was only like 80 of us because everybody else didn't have enough faith to show up that morning, right? (laughs) Or they had too many brain cells. I don't know, whatever, right? God has helped us. We've been through all kinds of difficulty. We've been through all kinds of storms, and God's helped us, right? God has helped us. And now, man, I just want us to remember. I just want us to think for a moment here that our church is a huge blessing and evidence of grace that our church is here, that our church is growing, that our church is thriving, that we are seeing lives changed. And it's all because God is our help. He's the one doing the work that no man can do. He's been leading us. He's been teaching us. He's been disciplining us and discipling us and changing hearts. As we saw last week, he's the one drawing people to Jesus When I look at this building and this entire campus, I want to always remember that. That 90% or more of church plants, that's new churches that get started, fail. And we didn't and we haven't because God has been our help. So we rejoice in the work that God has done on this campus the last 11 and a half years. And we look forward in hope to what God is going to do in our new building. And I'm just going to say, I believe the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Now, if you noticed, I have 51 verses to work through. And most people would just create a little short, nice sermon for this morning that talks about the end of an era and the beginning of another. But that's not me. And we're in the Gospel of John. So we got work to do in the Gospel of John this morning, all right? And so um, all the people that don't have children and aren't used to children, this is what it's like to have children. (laughs) You're going to remember or get used to it, okay? They are not a distraction to us. They are the mission for us. They are a key piece of our mission. So we want our kids in here, here in the same gospel, part of the same liturgy with us this morning. So let me pray for us and we can get going this morning. Father God, I've said it already. You have been our help. You have been better to us than we've been to ourselves. You are gracious. You are good. You are great and you are glorious. And we want to give you all the praise this morning. Thank you for what you've done in the past 11 years. Thank you for what you've given us in this new building, in this new space, this new home base to do do new ministry to the next generation and to reach our city for Christ. We believe that you're gonna uh, light a light, man. You're gonna light a lamp at 1811 18th Street and you're gonna draw many people to Jesus in that building. And we, we just declare it. And we ask that you would help us even now that I am just a man. I am a sinful man. And that means my words mostly just fall flat but I know that the word of God brings life, that the word of God cuts to the heart. The word of God divides and gets into places that I can't get. And you deposit your word, which is a seed that produces eternal life. And so we ask this morning that you would anoint my mind, you would think through my mind, and you would speak through my vocal cords, that your people would hear your voice and that you would get glory for it. Father, I want to continue to pray for Isla Galliard. I pray that you would continue to heal her body, give her the strength and the faith that she needs to fight, strengthen the family as well. Give grace upon grace upon grace. Father, and other, other people in our church also who are fighting illnesses and sicknesses and cancer and all kind of things, we want to pray for them as well. We just deliver them up to you and ask that you would be mighty and that you'd heal them as well. I pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, without question, Jesus Christ has been the most influential human 
that has ever lived, which is funny to me because we still have the most famous podcaster on the planet saying stupid things like, was Jesus a real person? That's Joe Rogan, if you didn't know. He still asks his guests, was Jesus a real person? Was Jesus a historical person? Which is an ab- absolutely bizarre because nearly every scholar agrees that he was. Nearly every even unbelieving scholar agrees that he was. We have Jewish historians that weren't even Christians that talk about Jesus. You have Tacitus, a Roman philosopher and historian who writes about Jesus from the first century. And so there is historical evidence that proves that Jesus Christ was a real person. And Jesus Christ, by the impact that he has had over centuries around the globe has proven he is the most influential human being that has ever lived. Our very calendars are defined by him. Everything changed when Jesus showed up. There was a time that we labeled BC, which is before Christ, and then everything changed when he showed up so that we called that AD, Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. Jesus changed the world. Now, I'm not going to belabor that point. If you Google it, you will, most people will put him at least in the top three, but he's, he's the top. All right. What I want to do today is teach you the main message of John chapter seven. And if I could form it into a question, it would be, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know the real Jesus? Now, that might seem like a simple question, and it is. But unfortunately, as Joe Rogan proves, most people don't understand the person and work of Jesus. And here's why that's such a big deal. If you don't understand who Jesus is, you won't understand what he came to do. And if you misunderstand his identity and his mission, you won't be able to receive the gifts that he came to give you. Here's the idea. Mankind was so screwed up that no one can fix it. Now listen, this has been mythologized a million times over. This is in Star Wars, we're waiting for the one. This is in Harry Potter, this is the boy who lived, okay? We're all waiting for the one that can fix everything for us, that can bring order or stability or healing or can finally kill the dragon. All these myths, all of these myths are shadows that were pointing to the reality that came in Jesus Christ. No one could fix humanity's problems, so God had to fix them himself by sending Jesus, his one and only son, to come to this sin-sick, broken world as a representative both of God and man to do what we could not do. Jesus obeyed God perfectly, never sinning, and then he died on the cross for our sins to take the punishment that we deserve. Since Jesus is the one and only God-man who could both live a perfect life and die as our substitute, there is only one path to salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. Now, I understand that people today don't like to hear that, but it's my job to teach you what God's word says, not to say things that you like. Listen, my job is not to come up with a TED talk that you find interesting. My job is not to see what do the people need to hear or want to hear and then deliver that to you. All all I'm up here to do is I am a mailman delivering the word of God to you. 
okay? My word falls flat. God's word changes lives. All I'm here to do is tell you what God says. So let me say this as clear as I can. Jesus came to give you life and life more abundantly. That's eternal life. But if you don't believe he is the son of God who died for your sins, he is unique in all of human history. If you don't believe he's absolutely unique as God and man, then you will die and go to hell and be eternally cut off from God. Woo, Justin, this is supposed to be a celebration. This is a celebration, right? There's one fire exit. That's what I'm telling you. There's one fire exit and you got to go through that. And his name is Jesus Christ. Peter says in Acts 4, 23, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other exit, no other way out, no other path. So if you want to go to heaven and I want you to go to heaven, I want you to have your sins forgiven. I want you to know and meet the real Jesus who changes lives so you can have a BC life and an AD life. And I know many people in here have got that BC life. I met with a brother this week, was telling me about his story, has pagan tattoos over his arms because he tried paganism. Paganism didn't work. He's got Buddhist stuff on his chest. He tried Buddhism. Buddhism worked. He tried drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol didn't work. And now he's trying Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is working. Yeah. All right, I'm going to preach this morning. Let's go. Let's go. Jesus can do that for you. But here's the deal. You've got to meet the real Jesus. And the only way to meet the real Jesus is to meet him right here in the Bible. What we're going to learn today is that in this one chapter, I counted, and there are at least nine opinions on the identity of Jesus. There's nine different perspectives on the life of Jesus. That means there's a lot of confused people in this chapter, and I know that there is a lot of confused people in our world today. Most people don't know who the real Jesus is. Now, why is there so much confusion about the person of Jesus? Because God has an enemy named Satan or Lucifer, and Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy human beings. Satan, Jesus tells us, has been a liar from the beginning and he lied to our parents in the garden and he lies to people today about the identity of Jesus so that they'll be confused on the one savior so that they'll die and go to hell. Satan hates people and wants them to die in unbelief and go with him to his eternal damnation where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. So Satan deceives people about Jesus in order to destroy them. Now listen, Paul, the apostle, who had a, a, had a BC life and then an AD life who got changed by Jesus, he persecuted Christians and even killed Christians. And then Jesus showed up, the resurrected Jesus, and knocked him off his horse and changed his life. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11, that Satan will send false teachers out into the world and into churches and they will preach, quote, another Jesus and another gospel to deceive people in order to destroy them. And that prophecy from the Apostle Paul has been proven a million times over. How do you kill a thriving church? Send a false prophet to preach a false Jesus and a false gospel. 
It'll be dead in a, a matter of years. They might have a budget, they might have a building, but they've got no spiritual fruit on the tree. Now, if you go to Barnes and Noble, people that still do that kind of thing, and you look up books on Jesus, you can find a hundred perspectives on him. You can take classes on many college campuses on the perspectives on Jesus. In fact, the majority of the cults in the world factor in Jesus somehow. Jesus is so influential, he's so dominant in all of the world that even cults sprinkle in Jesus. They make Jesus a prophet or a, or a Jesus, a little G God or Jesus one of the gods or, or Jesus just some kind of glorified man that we could all become if we went inside of ourselves and realized the true and deeper spiritual part of ourselves. All the, not all of them, but most of the world's cults factor in Jesus somehow. They just misunderstand him or purposefully twist and change something about him. I think all of those cults share some of the misunderstandings that we're going to find in our chapter today. So let's jump right into our text. I'm going to move as quick as I can. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So Jesus has transitioned his ministry from Judea to Galilee because he recognized that the Jewish leaders hated what he was teaching and they wanted to kill him. Verse two, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Feast of booths, this was a week-long celebration where, remember we talked about this in Nehemiah, where when God led his people out of Egyptian slavery, they had to live in tents, right? And so this was the week-long celebration where the Jews set up tents and all their families lived in tents for a week long. And then they had this big uh, feast on the last day. And they were, they were reminded about God being faithful to them as he led them out. And they didn't have a tabernacle. They didn't have a house. They didn't have a temple. So they lived in these little tents, all right? Listen, this is kind of like this place. This place was our tent, all right? This was our feast of booth. We didn't own it, but God graciously gave us and we used it, all right? And now we're getting ready to move into our new building. Let's keep going. Verse three. So his brothers, now this is Jesus's flesh and blood brothers. Now the Catholic church has a real problem with these verses because the Catholic verse teaches that Mary was a virgin when, when she gave birth to Jesus, which is true. She was, she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, but Mary didn't stay a virgin, right? How, that would not have been a happy home with Joseph, right? <laughs> Joseph's like, Jesus, what did you take from me? Like, what God, what are you doing, right? No, I thought you gave us the gift. Catholic Church teaches Mary stayed a virgin. She did not stay a virgin. Jesus had brothers, okay? Jesus had brothers. Here they are right here. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. Saying, go, and, go back to where everything is happening. The religious people are gathering in Judea. Everything spiritual, everything religious, everything important happens in Judea. Go back there. Look that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. Here's what you're about to see. Here's the first perspective on Jesus. His brothers believed Jesus to be just a normal man. I want you to hear that this morning. If you're here and you think, I don't really know if I believe Jesus was the son of God. I don't really know if he rose from the dead. I don't really know if he could do miracles. Well, then you're in good company. Jesus' brothers felt the same way which teaches us something about the upbringing of Jesus, right? Jesus was not walking on his bathwater, okay? Wouldn't that have been fun? 
take a bath. No, like, like little, little Jesus on top of the water, right? And all the brothers going, he's doing it again. He's always showing up, right? He's always showing off, like tur- just zapping whatever food he wanted. I don't want that. I want mac and cheese, right? Jesus lived a normal life. Right? He wasn't, he didn't have this special upbringing. Now, what we're going to see here, you guys remember the story of Joseph in the Bible and his coat of many colors? And he had this special place in his father's house and his father's love. And all the brothers, how did all the brothers feel about Joseph? They despised him. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. Well, guess what? Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Jesus was the special son of the father. And all of his brothers, they didn't like him. All of his brothers didn't believe in him. You're about to see it as we keep studying this. So they're saying this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know you've done some cool stuff, but why don't you go back to where everything's happening and show yourself to them. Prove yourself, Jesus. Look at verse four. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So Jesus' brothers didn't believe that he was the son of God. And here's what he's saying. The brothers want Jesus to take the Barnum and Bailey uh, approach to ministry here. Like, go big or go home, Jesus. Put the big tent up. Call everybody out. Start doing miracle after miracle. Prove yourself to the world. If you're really that important, Jesus, prove yourself. This is hardened unbelief in Jesus. First perspective. I just believe Jesus is a normal man. We have this perspective when we say, Jesus, if you're real, Heal me. Jesus, if you're real, give me this. Jesus, if you're real, do that to me. That's one perspective on Jesus. Look at verse five. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' brothers didn't even believe in him. Verse six. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Now what that means, Jesus, when he talks about his time, he means his death, his resurrection, and his glorification at the right hand of God. That's what he means by his time. So I'm not ready to reveal myself ultimately as the son of God. I won't ultimately reveal. These miracles are just signs. I'm not gonna uncover or reveal my true self until I get up out of the grave and beat death and hell. That's when I'm really gonna. So my time has not yet come. But look what he says here. But your time is always here. I want to I let you know here before I get into this that Jesus' brothers, they will change their perspective later on in life. After Jesus gets up from the grave, James, one of the brothers of Jesus, will write, write one of the New Testament epistles. And he becomes a follower of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I always say this. How do you convince your siblings that you're the son of God? Right? Probably nothing short of rising from the dead is going to work. Okay? <laughs> And that's how Jesus did it, all right? Now look what Jesus says here, verse seven. The world cannot hate you. Whoa, Jesus bringing hate into the conversation. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. A couple things we need to see, the world. What does Jesus mean when he says the world? Well, this is an important New Testament term. It's the Greek word cosmos, and it actually has five different meanings. Okay, I'm going to go through them really quick. Number one, it can mean the universe. Number two, it can mean planet earth. Number three, it can mean the totality of humanity. Number four, it means the total of human existence in this present life with all of its experiences and possessions. And fifth, and this is the meaning today, it means the world order. 
or the world system as alienated from God, as in rebellion against God and condemned for its godliness. So that's what he means here. So listen, there is, when Jesus says the world here, he means everything that is sinful and set against God. Everything that is in unbelief and set against God. There is a worldly way of doing things and there is God's kingdom way of doing things. Jesus said really black and white things like you are either with me or you're against me. He didn't create a category for fans. There is no middle ground where you can stay wishy-washy and keep Jesus in ambiguity. You either love him or you hate him. Jesus is the light of the world. He comes into the world and those that let Jesus light up their life and they see their own sinfulness and they turn from their sinfulness and walk to Jesus, he cleanses them from their sin. But those who when Jesus comes into the world and he lights up their life and they see their sinfulness and they don't want to see it and they run for him, they hate Jesus. Those who do works of evil in the darkness run from the light. So the root, Jesus says this world, when he talks about the world, he talks about the ruler of this world is the devil. Talking about the ruler of not, the, not, not all of the earth, not all of the kingdom, the world as in the one that's leading the sinful occupation on this planet. That's the devil. He says the whole world is under the control of the evil one in 1 John 5. Again, why do people sin? Why is there brokenness? Why is there all this injustice? Because Satan is active at work in the world. He says in John 15 that Christians are not of the world. In other words, we're born of heaven. We're born of the spirit. We're born of the seed of God. And we're in the world, but not of the world. The believer is regarded as dead to the world. Dead to the world system. And we're supposed to be separated from the world in James chapter 1 verse 27. We're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to talk differently. We're supposed to worship God, not idols. The world will know us by our fruit and our love for one another. One's relationship with the world is an indicator of one's relationship with God. Those who love the world, the, the sinfulness of the world, are void of love for God the Father. 1 John 2.15 the scripture points out that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So Jesus here says, the world hates me, but it doesn't hate you because you're of the world. Now, what does this mean? It means the devil just doesn't have a problem with you if you're not a Christian, right? You're, if you're not a Christian, you're already on the path to hell. He doesn't have to do anything in your life but let you be. So you might make plenty of money. You might have a pleasant marriage. You might have pleasant children. But you are going to be pleasant on the way to hell. Amen. But here's what he says. If you are a Christian, then the world will hate you. Now, we're beginning to realize in our generation today, as our society, America, was founded on Christianity. 
under one God. And that one God was not some pluralistic God. It was the Christian God. And now as we've gotten away from him, for a long time we were in this neutral world. Well, people didn't really care and they saw your religion and their religion. We don't really care. We see Christianity as neutral. It used to be positive. Now it's, then it was neutral. And now we've moved into this negative world where people hate Christians. People hate our values. People hate that we say things like there is only male and female. Everything else is a figment of your imagination. There is, right? We say things like that, that marriage is only between one man and one woman. Why? Because God gave us marriage. God made us in his image. And marriage points back to the ultimate marriage of Jesus and his bride. You said these things for hundreds of years and people either nodded or they yawned or they clapped and everybody believes that. And now they hate you because of it. Well, guess what? John, Jesus tells us here in John that they should hate you. If you are a Christian, they should hate you. Do we want to be kind? Do we want to love? Do we want to pursue? Do we want to invite? Yes, all of those things. But underneath all of that, there is a hatred. Why? Because you are of the light and they are living in darkness and the darkness has nothing to do with the light. Jesus says to his brothers, yeah, you got no problem with the world because you're in the world. You're of the world. They got a problem with the light. Everybody hanging out in darkness. Nobody cares if you put another guy in the darkness. But you come walking into the party with a light. People have a problem with that. Jesus is that light. All right. Verse 8. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. I'm not ready to unveil myself. My true nature. My true identity. Verse 9. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So he didn't listen to his brothers. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Isn't it interesting, I would say to Joe Rogan, that this man that supposedly never existed, people are still muttering about him today, 2,000 years ago, <laughs> right? 2,000 years, a poor peasant man who never owned an iPhone, never, that just reminds me actually, Never posted a selfie. Come on now. Come on now. Come on now. Come on, give me one of these. Let's go. Never posted a selfie. Never immortalized himself on Facebook. We're still talking about this man today. He's changed nations. He's changed the world. While some said, oh, here's, here's, here's number two. Some said, he's a good man. Here's the, here's the next perspective on people. Yeah, yeah, Jesus was real. Jesus was really existed. And he was a good man. He was a good man. Like, like you know, all that stuff he said about loving your neighbor and, and not casting the first stone and, and all that stuff is about judge not, judge not that you should not be judged. Jesus was a good man, right? That's one perspective. Jesus could not have been just a good man. Because he said outlandish things like eat my flesh and drink my blood. Would you say a good man does that? He's a good old boy. He wants you to eat him, but that's, I mean, a, like what? That's not a good guy. That's a weirdo, okay? Unless it's true, all right? So he's a good man. Now look, what, look at verse 12. Oh, Jesus is just a good man. Many cults teach that Jesus was just a good man. He's just an ideal man that we should look at and emulate him. Verse 12, the second half. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, 
He is leading the people astray. In other words, don't get too close to this guy. He's a dangerous man. I'm gonna tell you, that's actually pretty close to the truth. Jesus is dangerous. If you get close to him, you will have a reaction. You will be changed by him, all right? That demons flee from him. Darkness flees from him. He is the light that dispels the darkness. And so he is dangerous. If you want to stay in your sin, if you want to stay in your old life, Jesus is a dangerous man. He's dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. Verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. People were really influenced by the dominant religious leaders of the day. So they're kind of whispering these things about Jesus behind his back. 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. I want you to see the boldness, the masculinity, the bold masculinity of Jesus. Knowing they're wanting to kill him, knowing they're muttering about him, knowing they're saying stuff about him, he's a dangerous man. And Jesus walks up into the pulpit and begins teaching. Man, I want to follow a Jesus like that. This is not some kind of soft, effeminate Jesus. He steps up into the pulpit and he's going to declare. People want to kill him. They're like, he's like, they want to kill me. And he walks up into the pulpit, the pulpit and he begins preaching the gospel. Amen. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Here's the next. This is the fifth perspective on Jesus. Oh, he's a really smart man. Or, or yeah, he was a brilliant philosopher. Or he was a brilliant teacher. And this is kind of the Jesus that he teaches in a lot of the secular colleges today. Yeah, he was a great philosopher. He was borrowing from Plato and Socrates and all this kind of stuff. And he was just in that stream. Or he was a brilliant teacher and he, he was learning from Tao and he's learning from all these different ways. And he just said what everybody else is saying. He was just a brilliant teacher. Well, Jesus doesn't leave that open for us as well because he teaches some things like, he also teaches, I am the son of God. Right? So C.S. Lewis famously said, he can't just be a good teacher. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. Okay? That's it. That's it. All right, verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, the reason I'm brilliant, the reason I'm a great communicator, the reason I've got power and authority in my voice isn't because I'm a man who's went to all the schools. It's because God has told me what to say. Now listen, I get challenged quite often about my personality, the way that I preach, okay? I come off as quite arrogant, okay? I know that about me. There's actually nothing I can do about it, okay? This is why Jesus got up and he didn't do what the teachers of the day did. Here's what the teachers do. And here's what the teachers in the world like to do. They like to quote Aristotle. They like to quote Plato. They like to quote this preacher and this preacher and that perspective and that scholar. And Oh, we don't really know, but some people believe this and some people believe that. And Jesus got up and said, this is what God says. I know because I was there and he told me face to face. And so when I preach, I want to preach, this is the way. I want to preach, here is the right way to interpret this. I want to say, this is what the Bible says. You can believe it, you can respond, or you cannot. Now, do I come off as arrogant as that? Yeah, I do. I don't really care. Is that arrogant? I guess it is. I don't know. The word of God, this is what the word of God says. I don't want to give you a bunch of wrong perspectives and let you choose one. Parents that choose, there's many parents today that want to do that with their children. I'm not going to force my religion on anybody. I'm not going to force, I'm going to let them see what's right for them. What? 
I'm not going to lay out a bunch of garbage for my kids and say, choose dinner, son. I actually know what they'll choose. Right? The sweetest thing on the menu. Right? No, no. I want quality food. I want good food. I want true bread. I want true living water. That's what I want to feed our children. That's what I want to feed our church. So I'm not going to tell you every perspective. I'm going to tell you what I believe is the right perspective when I'm, when I'm teaching. And I'm going to teach it like I actually believe it. Gosh. All right. Let's go. Let's go. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. Now listen, this is why I pray every, every single week. I pray, God, think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. Will I say things that are not ordained by God? Sure I will. I could get in the flesh. I could say dumb things. If I say something dumb, let it go. Let it go, right? Grab on to what God's saying. Grab on to what you know is from God, what is clear, right? Keep going. 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. In other words, Jesus wasn't up there to, to impress a bunch of people. I'm not up here to impress a bunch of people. I don't want you to think I'm the smartest guy in the world. I don't want you to, I don't want you, any of that. I want you to see God's glory in the cross of Jesus Christ every single week. That's what I want you to see. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me or him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. In God, there is no falsehood. Jesus is the truth. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Oh, I love this. Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, you're trying to kill the, son, the one and only son of God because you don't like what I'm teaching. And yet you know Moses said, you should not kill. Thou shalt not kill, right? The crowd answered, you have a demon. I want, like, I want to know which one said that. Who is seeking to kill you? All right, here's perspective number six. Jesus is actually demon-possessed. Jesus actually responds to this claim in one of his gospels. He just, he like takes the logical response. He's like, I'm demon-possessed, so, but I'm casting out demons. So you're saying I'm demon-possessed and that gives me the ability to cast out demons? A house divided against itself shall not stand. In other words, that doesn't make sense, right? But people thought this of Jesus. He's demon-possessed. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Remember, he healed the man on the Sabbath. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So in order, on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do any work, but they would, in order to obey the, the law, on the eighth day, they had to circumcise their sons. And if that fell on a Sunday, they would still circumcise their sons. So he's like, you do a good work on the Sabbath and I heal a man on the Sabbath and yet you want to kill me. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath, I made a whole bo man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In other words, you're wrong, bro. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. In other words, all of the religious authorities were blown away by the true authority of Jesus. Jesus was a debater that never lost a debate. Jesus never got outwitted 
all right? Jesus was crafty. Jesus was wise. Jesus was brilliant as the son of God. And he had a true authority that he knew, knew what God said. And so when he got up to preach, all the people with all their opinions and all the scholars that have all done all their studies and they got PhDs behind their name and they've got more letters than the alphabet behind their name. All of these, all of these people, when Jesus started teaching, they took a step back. Nobody wanted to get on the debate stage with Jesus Christ. And the people noticed that and said, oh, everybody's got opinions until Jesus starts talking. Then they all get real quiet. Is not this the man they're seeking to kill? Here's what they say. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Here's perspective number seven. Is Jesus the Christ? Christ means Messiah that's the anointed one. That means the promised one. That means the one that's going to come and conquer Satan and is going to set up God's kingdom on this earth. That it, could it be that he is the one that's come to save us? Could this be the one? Now look what people say. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord he who sent me is true. He, he says, I came from the Father. I was sent from heaven. And him you do not know. Verse 29, I know him. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I get this picture of the movie Elf here. Like, <laughs> Santa, I know him, right? Like, I know him. Like, Jesus is like, I know God. Why? I was with him. I was his, I, he's my father. I'm the son. I know him. For I come from him and he sent me. Look, so they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In other words, God had providentially determined the way and the time of Jesus' execution. And no one could touch him. Jesus was invincible until that moment. And his time was not yet here. He had not accomplished everything that the Father had sent him to accomplish. So all these people hated him. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to kill him, but they couldn't do anything. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. Yet many of the people believed in him. That's the proper response. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So they're, they're looking at him and like, clearly this is the Christ. Nobody's ever been like this. Nobody's ever done stuff like this. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. In other words, I'm not staying here. I'm going back to God. I'm going back to heaven. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me where I am, you cannot come? He means heaven. That's what he meant. They, didn't, they missed it. He meant heaven. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow, livings, flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected, Jesus had to go back to the right hand of the Father to send the Holy Spirit. So now when people believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit into us to give us faith, to make us believe, to keep us safe for eternal life. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Here's perspective number eight. Oh, he's the, he's, he must be the prophet. He must be the one they were prophesying about Deuteronomy 28, the one that's going to tell us how to find God. Well, that's kind of true and not quite true because he's more than the prophet. He is the word of God made flesh. Others said, this is the Christ. That's the right perspective. But some said, here he is, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Now, can you get this? Get, you got to get this in your head here. Jesus is doing miracles. He's doing signs. He's teaching very authoritatively. All of this stuff is testifying that he's the Christ. And they're like, yeah, but he's from Galilee. Like, like he's in Galilee right now. Like, I, I don't really think in the Old Testament it said that they were going to, and he's going to say, let me keep reading here. Let me keep reading. 42, has not the scripture said the Christ from, comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So they're like, I read one verse in the Old Testament that said that, that the, out of Bethlehem will come this Messiah. So, and, and Jesus is in Galilee, so Jesus can't be the Christ. Well, what happens is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, then he moved and was raised in Nazareth, and then he did his ministry, his home base for ministry was in Galilee. So they didn't understand that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, and then he was raised in Nazareth, and then he did ministry in Galilee. Keep reading. <clears throat> Has not this, okay, no, for 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Listen, folks, this is why Jesus is controversial. Jesus divides. Now, Jesus divides and, and Jesus teaches love, love our enemies. Jesus teaches us be kind to our neighbors. Jesus teaches us to love everyone, to, to treat each other as we want to be treated. So Jesus divides between light and darkness, between heaven and hell, between sinner and saint. He divides us, but he does not condemn those over there and, and make us hate each other. He bring, there's a true divi a division that happens between believer and unbeliever, but there's still a benevolent compassion towards the lost. All right? I, I, want you, I want to get that clear. Because we are supposedly, supposedly the most tolerant nation that has ever lived right now. We're some, we're, we've been teaching tolerance for decades, and now we're the most divided and the most antagonistic, the most hateful generation, maybe, well, I don't know, in, a in my lifetime for sure in a long time, right? We're divided along political lines. Many times we're divided along racial lines. We're divided along socioeconomic lines. We're divided on every stinking issue that you can think of, right? People hate each other. Listen, I drive a truck. I know some of you hate me because I drive a gas guzzling truck. I do, I do, and I enjoy it. It would have been really funny to watch me try to, to remodel this building with an electric vehicle, okay? Been real funny in my little Prius and putting 16-foot boards on top of it or something, right? Come on. But I want you to see, I want you to see this. When the real Jesus stands up, 
division happens. If you have more than one head, you have division, right? There's vision and there's division. Jesus Christ is the one son of God. Jesus Christ is the one God man. Jesus Christ is the one head of the church. Jesus Christ is the one king of the universe. There is no one else next to him. So he will say, he will bring division on this earth. He will bring division. It's benevolent division. You're with him or you're against him. Verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. In other words, did you hear him? They were blown away by him. But this crowd, I love this, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In other words, these are uneducated people. I know the Old Testament better than they do. They didn't, actually. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Here's the question for us this morning. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know the real Jesus? There's a lot of different opinions and perspectives, but there's only one right answer. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the God-man who has entered into human history through the womb of Mary, who lived a perfect life and pleased God perfectly in everything he did. Then to save us from our many sins, he went to a rugged Roman cross and took sin upon himself and bore the punishments that we deserve. Listen to me. Listen to me really quick here. This is it. I'm closing right now, all right? Listen to me. If there was another way to God, if there was another way to salvation, then God the Father sending his one and only son to die a death on a cross was divine child abuse. If somebody could have been saved any other way, then Jesus wouldn't have to come and die. But the Son of God came to save you from your sins. He loves you so much, he gave up his life. 33 years old. I'm older than Jesus was, right? He gave up his one and only life to save you from your sins. Amen. No one else has, could do that. No one else has done that. So it's not arrogant to say that he's the only way. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. All of us are going to die. Jesus, even though he was perfect and sinless and God took our wages so that we could have his life, eternal life. Then Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was. Even his brothers became believers after the resurrection. He was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. John was one of those eyewitnesses. Then Jesus went back to where he was from. He ascended back into heaven to rule and reign the nations until he returns again to judge the living and the dead. Amen. That's the real Jesus. Anything else is just a figment of some person's imagination. I pray that you would put your faith in that Jesus today. And you could have a BC life and an AD life. I'm going to pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for not destroying us in our sin, but sending Jesus to be our 
propitiation, to be our Savior, to be the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, that we could hide ourselves in Him, that He is the rock of ages cleft for us so that we could hide ourselves in him. So now when the father looks at us, he looks through Jesus and he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ and he accepts us and he loves us and he forgives us. And now in that new identity, we can love others. We can forgive those who sin against us. We can forgive those who lie about us, who talk bad about us, who say ugly stuff about us. We can offer forgiveness because we are forgiven. We have been forgiven much and so we can forgive much. God, I pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we would be reminded of the sacrifice that was given for us, for our sins, and we would also be reminded of the sacrifice that's required of us as we lay our sins down, confess them, and forgive one another. We eat together as a family. We were all enemies of God, and we've been made children of God through the gospel. We've been made family together. We eat together as a family and we're thankful for our Father's provision for us in salvation and we're thankful for the Father's provision for us as a church as we move into a new building. God, you are a good God and you've taken care of us for 12 years and we know there's many more decades to come. We bless your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.